0: Maya Jasanoff writes about globalization and empire. You could say she embodies both or the thumbprint of each. She's Asian on her mom's side with family ties back to India, Polish, Jewish on her dad's side, both parents scholars, and so is she with a very literal global stamp. In her latest work, she voyaged far from Harvard, where she teaches, by cargo ship from Hong Kong to the U.K., and far up the Congo River in Africa, heart of darkness territory, Joseph Conrad. It's Conrad, the great great novelist who she's on the trail of this time. He gave us so much of the vocabulary of globalization in his books Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim and Nostromo and more. Not the marketing pitch about global connectedness, but the tough stuff, imperialism, greed, the savagery in ourselves. Conrad was there, she reminds us, as the age of sale turned to the age of steam and modern globalization was born. Her book is The Dawn Watch, he was there at the dawn of what we're living now. Maya Justinoff, it's great to sit down with you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So here you are out on the ships, out on the boats, uh, sailing from what, Hong Kong to Southampton, uh, up the Congo River, describing Joseph Conrad travels all over the place. Uh, some of them put me into very far waters. I spent time on the, that eastern side of Borneo where he did a lot of his uh, uh, went to far east sailing up those rivers and little coasters and mangrove swamps. But this is not somebody who was born at the mast. Remind us of Joseph Conrad's background and what put him at what you call kind of the dawn in the Dawn Watch, the dawn of our era of globalization.
1: Well, he was born about as far from the mast as people could be at that time, which was hundreds of miles away from the ocean. From the seafaring life. Exactly. He was yeah. born uh, in present-day Ukraine, uh, which was then part of the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. And Parents he,
0: were Poles, but what we'd call Ukraine today.
1: Exactly. So he belonged to this ethnically Polish community mm-hmm. at a time when Poland itself, it should be said, didn't exist mm-hmm. as a nation. Mm-hmm. So he was a subject of the Russian Empire. But his parents were fervent Polish nationalists, and they were dedicated to trying to bring back an independent Polish state, which meant that he was raised uh, in with kind of two major consequences, I think. One is that he was raised with this sense of having been dispossessed, Mm -hmm. of missing a homeland, of not having roots in the place that he actually lived. This is
0: something we recognize today all over the place, displaced populations.
1: Very much so. So he had that sensibility. And then the other thing was, a, in a way, a more sort of practical consequence of it, which is that His parents, being dedicated Polish nationalists, got wrapped up in nationalist activity to the point that his father, uh, who was a kind of poet and a journalist and a man of letters, was ultimately uh, arrested by the czarist authorities for trying to publish what they said was a seditious newspaper. Mm -hmm. And the result is that the young Conrad was uh, sent off into exile with his parents at a very early age. And both of his parents, in these very harsh conditions of exile, died prematurely, leaving Conrad an orphan at the age of 11. So he had a really peripatetic childhood, all in Central Europe, but all under the shadow of this sense of of loss.
0: It sounds grim, but this is an amazing story. I read it last summer in a review copy uh, in a chair on the beach, and I was absolutely uh, swept away with this. Uh, but the Dawn Watch, as in, of course, if, if you're on the sailing ship, you've got that to watch uh, to seize the sun up. Um, but you're also really describing this as the dawn of modern globalization. Describe the time What he was born, 1850.
1: 1857.
0: 1857, that's
1: right. If you go forward toward the end of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. you see a lot of things happening in the world that are kind of step changes in the degree to which peoples are brought together and on the move and in which economies are integrated. So, one of the great things that happens at this time is, of course, the telegraph Mm -hmm. becomes the mode of communication, the Mm -hmm. under- see telegraph cables are laid it means that within moments you can transmit news from one continent to another whereas for millennia before that news could only travel as fast as the person carrying it
0: utterly mundane idea today but then just epical in the scale of that change.
1: absolutely so that revolutionizes uh, communications awareness
0: and connection
1: absolutely Mm -hmm. and with it you get other kinds of Step changes in speed and connectivity, one of which, uh, is to do with transport. So you have the steamship coming in, which will be very significant for Conrad. Mm-hmm. You have transcontinental railroads being built. Mm-hmm. You have with that in turn, huge numbers of people moving around the world, uh, in a wave of emigration that transforms the shape, as we know, living in the U.S. of, of the Americas, but also transforms parts of Asia as, as tens of millions of people are on the move uh, in this kind of late 19th into the early 20th century period. He, he
0: ended up going to sea. Uh, he sailed for years. Uh, he sailed uh, in famously in the East. He sailed once on the Congo River. Uh, Heart of Darkness came from that uh, famously. Uh, and in that time, and then, of course, turned to writing these fantastic novels. Uh, he's taken a lot of heat from some people and we'll talk about that, uh, more lately for his attitudes toward, uh, uh Africans and Asians and, and others. Uh, on the other hand, you describe him almost, describe him almost as a kind of seer in that he, he saw in the very earliest filaments of the modern global, globalized era, some of its deepest implications, I want to get to the story, but, but make us alert to what Conrad saw in the in the earliest mists of what we live fully in now,
1: so as i've mentioned, you know we've got this revolution in communications and transport, and Conrad is on the on the deck of that uh, mm-hmm. as a sailor, but I think what we also have at this time that he sees, and this is where this kind of uh, more prophetic quality comes out, is that this is a time when you have certain kinds of international ideologies that are knitting together the world and also in some ways dividing it. It's also a time when you have what we would today call multinational capitalism Mm -hmm. spreading, Mm -hmm. often spreading at that time under the flag of European empires and formal empires, but also spreading as Conrad would see through different kinds of investments and entities based out of the United States, among other places. And I think that what gave Conrad a kind of insight into this or made him uh, aware of these forces around him was partly, of course, the force of his personal experience as a sailor, which brought him... Literally into the domains of so many of these different empires, so many of these different parts of the world. Unlike any of his contemporary writers in English, but also that he was, as we've discussed, a a product of so much upheaval of the times, a product of, in a sense, the clash between the ideologies of uh, nationalism in the form of his Polish parents and forms of uh, imperial authoritarianism as Mm -hmm. uh, the Soviet, as the as the Russians were were uh, exercising. Exercising it. at mm-hmm. that time, um, and uh, and he's a product of this sense of rootlessness, which uh, many people in the decades and generations since have come to see as one of the sorts of consequences of this kind of upheaval. That you know, globalization is at once. Uh, a set of interconnections, but it's also a sense of disruption, a set of disruptions and a set of dislocations.
0: He saw that if he were here today looking around reading the same news that we're reading, what would he recognize in some of the outgrowths of globalization that we're living with right now?
1: Well, he would definitely recognize what I think is so apparent to many of us right now, which is that globalization has both winners and losers. And that in the face of this kind of contest of, uh, of forces and this period of in- immense change, one of the responses of people is to try to push back against it. So, the rise of what we're seeing today in the form of populist nationalism mm-hmm. in so many parts of the world when is When something- Donald Trump
0: goes to trade war-
1: Absolutely, is something that Conrad would absolutely have recognized, and he would have recognized it because he lived through that as well in mm-hmm. the run-up to World War I, which was a time of mounting nationalism in some parts of the world, and also a time of, of course, mounting what would ultimately become communism in the Soviet mm-hmm. Revolution, mm-hmm. A, a sort of populist economic uh, pushback mm-hmm. against some of the forces of capitalism. At the Winners
0: time. and losers, what else? He, he looked at the way, I mean… Heart of Darkness. He goes right to the to the soul of things. Uh, Europeans went out into Africa and talked about savagery. He saw savagery in the very what um, uh, push into Africa.
1: Yeah, one of the things that uh, Conrad is often uh, criticized for, and 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 not not wrongly, is his racism. His idea that if you're going to be talking about savagery, the place where you're going to be talking about that is Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, I think what he was very uh, aware of was that the language of civilization that white Europeans at the time were using to justify their push into Africa was itself completely saturated with racism in a way that he could step back from and recognize and was also saturated with these what he took to be really hypocritical ideas of, you know, we have it better, we can do things better, when in actual fact, as he saw himself in Congo, they were being incredibly violent, rapacious, brutal, and exploitative.
0: Barack Obama, I think, at some point talked about um, uh, Conrad and said ultimately the heart of darkness he was looking at went back to Europe, was in the European heart. Absolutely. Uh,
1: Barack Obama describes this really nicely in his memoir, where his, his friends are saying, why are you reading that racist tract when they see him with a copy of Heart of Darkness? And he says, because, you know, it's about more than About more than you know, this episode in Congo. It's about the person who wrote it. It's about Europe. It's about, as he puts it, a particular way of seeing the world, and I would contend that that way of seeing the world is still uh, very much in evidence among people today.
0: Take us on Conrad's. I mean, you sailed. You sailed on a cargo ship, a big container ship, I think, from Hong Kong uh, back to the UK. You sailed down the Congo River from Kisangani down to I don't know Kinshasa or something like that. Uh, take us back to his major sort of routes of of Joseph Conrad. He started in the age of sail.
1: He did. He started out as a sailor in the 1870s. Uh, it's a time when sailing ships are still uh, commercially profitable on particularly the longest distance uh, sailing routes. Mm-hmm. And so it means that first of all, he comes up within this set of skills, traditions, nautical craft, uh, a word craft that he's going to end up using a lot in his, in his writing, uh, which uh, have to do with moving these immense and incredibly complicatedly sort of engineered vessels purely by force of nature. Mm-hmm. And he comes away from that experience, I think, with indeed a very acute sensitivity to the forces of nature to the forces of community which he sees as
0: required to make those great ships effectively sail
1: absolutely uh and he also as a result of the kind of uh economics of sail at that time is traveling on these very long distance routes Mm -hmm. so he goes disproportionately from Europe to Southeast Asia and to Australia. Mm-hmm. And that puts him into this whole realm, particularly in present-day Indonesia and Malaysia, of maritime communities that are uh, very kind of culturally mixed up and uh, mobile Uh, And he gets an insight into a part of the world that at the time was not part of the formal British Empire or French Empire, but was inflected by all kinds of uh, overlaid and intersecting cultures.
0: The ones who were going to see alongside him.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is an area with uh, with Arabs, with Malays, with Chinese, with Indians, of course, with Europeans. And it's this kind of cast of characters who will end up populating the pages of his fiction.
0: He ends up, his, his sailing career ends up spanning the time when things were going to steam. He didn't like that transition.
1: No, so Conrad as uh, as I mentioned is learning this kind of craft. He's learning how to deal with uh with lines and with uh with sails and uh with a whole elaborate form of technology which then changes. On a steamship you need engineers and you need people who are shoveling the coal into boilers and it's a if you will, a sort of industrialized form of of getting around. Of course, it's dependent on fossil fuels, and Conrad felt that with that transition, a way of life and a set of crafts was lost. And in the world of steam, as he saw it, was embodied all of the things he really disliked about the industrial age. He saw people as being really atomized. He thought the value of community is sold short in mm-hmm. this era. He saw people as losing. Using touch with the forces of nature and with the sense of, as he would put it, something bigger than themselves.
0: Hmm. In Southeast Asia, he wasn't just on the great high seas. He was up the rivers of, of Borneo. He was way out in what we would see as pretty small boats with what do you, rice and rattan and guns and gunpowder and s- slaves.
1: Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that I was really interested in uh, d- uh, in discovering about Conrad is that many of us come to Conrad, if we come to him at all today, through Heart of Darkness mm-hmm. or even through Apocalypse Now, the movie.
0: <laughs> Marlon Brando, and, Way Up River is Kurtz. Exactly. The horror, the and, and
1: And we tend to look at Conrad's Heart of Darkness in the context, of course, of his own trip to Africa and the history of Congo. But By the time Conrad got to Congo, he had actually been in Southeast Asia a lot, and he had encountered some of the same kinds of things. He had encountered being on a steamship. He had encountered going up a river. He had encountered meeting uh, Europeans who were up the river, and he had also encountered these kinds of surreptitious trades. And I think that it's – one of the things that we – sometimes lose sight of when we look at the past is the way that the layering of experience as we all know it from our own lives can affect the way people see things so when conrad went to congo he wasn't just seeing it out of a vacuum he was seeing it out of a lifetime of having mm-hmm. been moving around and mm-hmm. having seen kind of analogous sorts of things in other contexts people the
0: making their own little empires upriver, or sometimes failing in that losing themselves even in the effort
1: precisely conrad is full of failures
0: and pretty soon you have the horror the horror yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh he 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 brings it on around in in a number of books lord jim is set in that area remind us you you have these great sort of thumbnails but give us just the outline of lord jim and what what we learned from conrad there on the globalization front
1: lord jim is a book about A failure. It's a book about a young British sailor who Mm -hmm. dreams of heroism at sea in a sailing ship, ideally, uh, but who in one of his early voyages, uh, when faced with the moment when he could become a hero, instead has this act of cowardice. Mm -hmm. And the bulk of the novel actually follows him through an extended process of trying to redeem himself. And I must say that when I read it, it was the first Conrad that I read. I read mm-hmm. it when I was 16 and mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this is unlike anything I've ever read because I was used to books where you know, it's sort of chronological and linear and there's a straightforward narrative and maybe the person is is, is enjoying one heroic exploit after another. None, none that that is here. totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what it shows us is, first of all, an introduction into this very complicated, mixed-up marriage maritime world of Southeast Asia, which is a place where empires and forms of capitalism and different cultures are meeting. It's also a place where Conrad lays out his objections to the world of steam as opposed to the world of sale, Mm
0: -hmm. a world in which- The heartless world, the colder world, the community-free world.
1: Exactly, a world in which someone like Jim, who should have been able to live up to a certain set of values, is instead kind of under peer pressure, encouraged to betray them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the end, I think it's also a statement about the ultimate failure of those values to make their way into uh to to survive perhaps in a world in which capitalism and certain forms of technology are encroaching into the the far reaches of the world as as Conrad sketches them out in that book so
0: did he have the view that before capitalism and uh, on the pressures of this trade uh these human societies were better or just just isolated from one another in their in their failings.
1: You know, Conrad is not a philosopher, mm-hmm. um, and I think that uh, he definitely had forms of idealism about certain kinds of community that that might not stand up to to, to total scrutiny. And mm-hmm. and he's he's certainly perceived by many these days to be a conservative with a small C for exactly that reason. So yes, I mean he did romanticize an earlier age, the age of sale. Um, that said, uh, I think he. Uh, for all that I think his conservatism, which is kind of romanticized and is built on his own experience in these overwhelmingly white male communities on board ship, um, while we can point to the conservatism, I think he's also really insightful when it comes to challenging what was at the time the very pronounced uh, championing of progress, and what I take away from Conrad as a reader in the twenty first century, as we live through a moment when there's a lot of championing of progress mm. on the back of certain forms of technology today, mm-hmm. is less a kind of romanticization of I mean, the
0: internet of, and the new connection, absolutely, and everything. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. What I take away is less a kind of romanticization of the past than a critique of the of the present. Ooh, and give us that all critique.
0: What do you what do you see in that?
1: Well, I think that what he's saying is, look, you know, you have to look at who's telling you that all of this is progress. Mm-hmm. You have to. Look Look at what they're actually doing in the name of progress, and what as he Facebook sees. goes,
0: ka-ching, ka-ching. ka-ching. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's exactly right, mm-hmm. and that I think is the nub of what he gets at in many of his books. And. In- To an extent, in *Heart of Darkness*, perhaps most explicitly in his novel *Nostromo*, which is set in South America, where he sees this uh, group of, uh, well, particularly an American investor, but group of capitalists uh, moving into uh, an investment in a South American republic and claiming, "Oh, we're going to bring you all the benefits of modernity and civilization, and so on." Yeah, it's going to be great. They're going to make money, and then the ordinary people are going to maybe lose out in Mm -hmm. various ways. Mm -hmm. So, I think Conrad is very. Acute on that. I think, uh, you know, again, he's not a philosopher. I don't think we can come away from his novels with some sort of crystalline, you know, insight into all these things. But that—that that I think too is is the value. I mean, I think that, I think that we see these debates between uh, progress and 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 uh, you know change between change and stasis uh, through. Uh, The filter of our own personal experiences and through the complexity of our own personal experiences. And where fiction, I think, is such a valuable source for us as just humans, Mm -hmm. but also for historians, Mm -hmm. is that it gives us a flavor of that kind of complexity on the ground of the lived experience of dealing with Uh, change and dealing with uh, transitions between kind of one way of being in the world and another
0: Uh, heart of darkness Uh, take us to the story and the 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 work that he did that gave him the scene and the setting for that and The story and what he took, what he, what he told us there.
1: So Heart of Darkness is a great example of the, uh, of the hypocrisy of civilization as it was championed in that period. The real story behind it is that Conrad, by that time, well into his Mm thirties and, uh, nearing, though he didn't entirely know it, the end of his maritime career Mm -hmm. was having increasing trouble getting jobs and he was having trouble getting jobs for reasons that again may be familiar to people today as technology was changing Mm -hmm. so was the labor market Mm -hmm. so the sailing ships that he was used to being on were fewer in number and there were fewer jobs on them so he ends up through a chain of circumstances taking a job that's quite unlike the others he had had before it's a three year contract to go up and down the Congo River on a steamship that is affiliated with this new uh, enterprise this new state in africa called the congo free state
0: what years are we talking about here? we're what talking year? about the
1: early 1890s mm-hmm. and what this is is uh the period of what historians would call the scramble for africa mm-hmm. a period in which european powers are you know rushing into africa and carving up the continent Grabbing into whatever they can states what makes the congo free state so exceptional even from the outset in the history of the scramble for africa is that Although the initiative is spearheaded by the king of the Belgians, Mm -hmm. Leopold II, Mm -hmm. and it is often thought of as a Belgian colony, Mm -hmm. it actually is set up with the ratification of the international community as a quote-unquote free state. Mm -hmm. It is officially not a colony. It Mm -hmm. is officially... An independent state. And it's an independent state that is officially dedicated to free trade. So anyone can go in and have commerce there, which in turn is supposed to facilitate freedom. The absence of slavery, slave trade was still going on in parts of Africa. But this is a fig
0: leaf that floats on blood.
1: Absolutely. And so this is where uh, I think the the, the absolute sort of nub of the hypocrisy of these ideals of civilization uh, rests. That – as against this backdrop, like oh, here in international law, you know, it's all great. It's not a colony. Mm-hmm. Everything is being supervised by, you know, the international community, etc. What is really happening is no oversight at all. Incredible rapacity. At the beginning of the 1890s, which is when Conrad goes, mm-hmm. the primary export that Europeans are taking out of Congo is ivory. Mm-hmm. They end up. And Slaughtering lots, and lots of it, mountains so of it. much mm. of it. They slaughter so many elephants mm. that it actually ends up getting more and more difficult to get ivory mm. out on the market. Ends up getting pretty glutted in Europe, so mm. the value goes down. Uh, Conrad sees. Among other things, alliances between the European traders and the well-known, uh, kind of, uh, uh, head of an internal African slaving network, uh, uh, in, uh, upriver in Mm -hmm. Congo to try Mm -hmm. to get the ivory. He sees a lot of violence along the way, Mm -hmm. uh, Africans being dragged into basically forced labor, being, uh, you know, beaten, being shot, being, you know, abused in every possible way. Even on this one voyage that he ends up taking on the river. He
0: doesn't stay three years. He he sees says, so no much. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: He, he dislikes all of the Europeans he meets. He dislikes mm-hmm. the conditions he sees. And he sees mm-hmm. that this whole promise of progress and civilization and freedom and so forth is a total sham. So he signs off and he comes home. Meanwhile, things get even worse in Congo. Because as the market for ivory starts to collapse, the people in Congo, the the whites, that is, find themselves a a new product that will end up revolutionizing uh, their business in Mm -hmm. Congo. And that new product is rubber. Mm -hmm. This is a time when, of course, bicycles are taking off and ultimately the motor car pretty soon. And so, the demand for rubber is huge. And uh, and so, uh, they set up this elaborate system of extended forced labor across Congo. It's incredibly well described in uh, the book uh, King Leopold's Ghost mm-hmm. by Adam Hochschild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and so, again, I mean, just appalling levels of violence, so much so that by the early 1900s, there's an international outcry uh, against all of the abuses in Congo, particularly let out of the UK. Uh, and so, what's interesting here is that Conrad himself sees Congo. He then writes Heart of Darkness, loosely based on his own voyage. And then Heart of Darkness comes out, it's published, Mm -hmm. at a time when there's an outcry against the abuses in Congo. So it it really fits into this sort of trajectory of uh, the development, in a sense, of a hypocritical regime, and then the exposure of the hypocritical regime.
0: Globalization and empire – uh, your, your great subjects, and they come through again and again in his work as well. Uh, is it is there something about all this interconnectedness that he saw as um, undergirding, necessitating, inevitably producing empire, imperialism?
1: Well, I think that the historian would tend to probably turn it around the other way and say that
0: empires certainly go way back before what we call globalization today precisely
1: but i think and nowadays of course people will say oh well you know empire is gone but of course, it's not. And it's not precisely because I think empire and globalization are incredibly interconnected. I say it's not. I mean, formally, it's not. Uh, 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 empire. Formally, empire is not with us on the map of the world today. Uh, and yet, uh, I think that the the mechanisms of imperialism, if we look at it particularly in the sort of Marxist-Leninist sense of certain forms of uh, extraction, are, are very much in evidence uh, in the world. So, if we think about globalization, as basically a process of uh, increasing interconnection, maybe mm-hmm. a fitful process, maybe one that uh, you know, has steps back occasionally, mm-hmm. one that has surges forward occasionally. Uh, and we track that alongside a world history that is marked by empire. Then I think we see that these two things go together. that that empire, which in Conrad's era and in many eras before that, was a force for integrating, Often, very forcibly and unevenly, populations and economies uh, was also a vector of what we would today call globalization.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S., of course, never liked to call its Pax Americana an empire. It was the liberal global order? We're told that's in the process of being dismantled right now by President Trump. The blow up with the NATO allies and the attacks on the UN institutions and on and on and on. And on would would conrad have have looked at that liberal gl- global order international order and have seen something um beyond empire some some you know something that had progressed to a uh to a to a higher state or just n- new clothing on an old powerful uh, you know projection.
1: I think the message of Conrad is that it's new clothing on the old Mm -hmm. emperor. Mm -hmm. Uh, The emperor's new clothes, so Mm -hmm. to speak, is globalization. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly belong to a, a, a generation or type of historian for whom the liberal global order is manifestly the heir of the imperial orders that Preceded it, we can even track this in quite literal ways. If you track, for example, the language of civilization as it's Mm -hmm. used Mm -hmm. in Conrad's era, Uh, it's used again as the great uh, sort of cover for certain kinds of exploitation. Particularly,
0: we are raising humanity to new heights. Absolutely, and guess (laughs) what? We are taking over. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and guess what happens to that language of civilization? It ends up making its way, you know, along through the first half of the 20th century. One of the great spokesmen, I think, for civilization uh, in uh, in the 20th century was none other than Winston Churchill, who mm-hmm. himself was, of course, a product of the British Empire. And I think we see in the period of World War II, uh, especially as the U.S. is making its presence Mm -hmm. manifestly felt in in the world, we see the value of so-called civilization um, being championed in the face of fascism, in the first instance, and communism in the second instance, and and really um, making itself the kind of rallying cry for – uh, the the Western liberal order mm-hmm. in World War II and beyond. And we see this idea of civilization, if you track it, for example, in Google Books, you'll see mm-hmm. the word surging up in the period of World War II and in the Cold War, because it is in the name of civilization, in the name of a Western liberal order, that the U.S. and its allies will, of course, initially defeat fascism and then champion their vision of the world in the post, uh, uh, post-war age, as against What they'll say is the evil empire, the Mm -hmm. Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we see a kind of direct, I think, legacy from this language of civilization into a U.S.-led global order of the 20th century.
0: That was pretty easy um, to have this continuity between the British and the American uh, imperium. Um, Winston Churchill kind of embodying that with his links to FDR and all the rest – Now we're looking at another shift of power, this time not of the same, uh, Western culture, if it's fair to put those two peas in that pod. Um, that's something Conrad never saw, I guess. He, he only lived in the age first of the, the British that would give way to the, to the American. Um, what about that kind of shift? What does that portend? If that's where we're headed now, a shift from, let's say, American uh, primacy to, Chinese.
1: Well, that's kind of the million dollar question these days. I think that uh I think Conrad wouldn't have been surprised to see that as American power is declining, there's a push toward a sort of resurgent nativist nationalism. I think that he would have expected. Whether he could have gamed out and seen what would come next or not, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I Civilization.
0: Think, that word could take on a very different coloring in a in an era of Chinese dominance. Precisely. They have a I very mean, rich and deep history themselves. Of yeah, what that means.
1: Absolutely. I think he knew very well, partly from firsthand experience, the tension between a form of broadly Western imperialism and nationalism, and he mm-hmm. saw different kinds of continuities. Uh, my hunch would be that Conrad would be suspicious of the people who today are saying that, oh, China has absolutely no interest in imperialism, they're just interested in having trade, and when they're buying up all this land in Africa and so on, there's mm. no interest at all in imperialism, no, no. et cetera. I mean, I don't think that anyone... From a nineteenth-century European uh, vantage point, who knew anything about the way empires expanded, then would feel quite as sanguine about the sense that that grabs for territory are entirely a thing of the past. Which I think is very much what kind of inflects some of the discussion today. Even those people who are very candid about and cognizant of the fact that America's economic dominance is slipping as against China uh, are often interested in kind of underscoring their view that china doesn't have territorial ambitions i don't know i'm not an expert on china but the history of empire would certainly show me
0: road certainly cover a lot of territory absolutely a project connecting europe and the entire asian landmass eurasian
1: yeah and one of the one of the yeah and one of the major uh theories about British imperial expansion in the 19th century in particular is that the British expanded territorially precisely because they wanted to protect their investments. And when your investments are under siege, then you're going to go in and, you know, try to claim the land around it. So, I think that, uh, you know, I, th- I think we should also just put on the table the fact that the the big thing that's, of course, transforming the 21st century world that Conrad didn't see as climate change, and that the future conflicts uh, in the world may very well be ones that are revolving around things like access to water Mm -hmm. uh, and food, which Mm -hmm. is, again, something that we can already see uh, entering into Chinese calculations about the assets they're acquiring.
0: At one time, for a long time, in a historian's uh, sort of a frame, uh, technology Drove empire. The Romans were great road builders and uh, built an empire in no small part on the backs of that. Uh, the British were great sailors and their empire followed the the sail or the sail extended it. Um, you know steam and uh, the great Petro era was the great American era with what uh, aircraft carriers all over the world. Um, lately I've seen people writing about how technology may actually begin to dismantle globalization. And I wonder what you think of that. I read a piece recently, this was on CNBC and somebody writing about seven technology trends that will destroy globalization. Let me try this out on you, Maya, uh, automated manufacturing and 3d printing. So the idea that you'd go all the way to China to make something, you know, in a factory there and then ship it all the way back to Columbus, Ohio for it to be used or employed. Uh, what sense would that make when it's you've got automated factories that might as well be here or 3D printing where things are made in your own home? Uh, vertical farming, you know, a, a whole lot of international trade today is foods, foodstuffs now they're talking about climate controlled uh vast uh, vertical farming sort of inside even um grow whatever you want wherever you want lab grown meat part of that why ship american beef all over the world if you're going to grow it in i don't know some kind of test tube it sounds terrible but there's clean energy more local uh fracking uh cutting down on the global movement of oil um internet firewalls uh, sort of cutting down even the global quality of connectivity of the internet. Do you see the possibility of technology, which for so long drove the trends toward globalization or reaching out, actually turning around and possibly shutting down globalization? Reining it in, at least.
1: So, what I find interesting about a lot of the technologies that you mentioned is that we already have them. So, what we're really well, we're not thinking not fully about,
0: deployed. I mean, robot factories.
1: So, mm-hmm. deployment is the key, mm-hmm. right? So, who's going to deploy it, and why? Mm-hmm. And I think that at the heart of a lot of this, uh, and of course, technology is going to be transformative. But a lot of what makes a technology transformative is how it's used. And I think that what we are looking at right now is a possible change in the way that power, people, and territory are layered onto each other. Now, through history, again, in fits and starts, and sometimes, you know, forward, sometimes backward, and I don't say that with value judgments attached, just if you look at the the contraction and expansion of borders, you see that the way that peoples and Uh, power and territories were put together tended to happen through empires and more recently through nation states Mm -hmm. i think that now many of the things that you just listed off are things that have to do with local autonomy Mm -hmm. and i think that you know when we talk about globalization now we're talking about networking among nation states Um, I think that it's perfectly possible that in the future, we will continue to have forms of networking, but it may not happen through the envelope of the nation state. Uh, So would we call that globalization or not? I'm not sure. I find it it, hard to. it's
0: global, it's global. Uh, I think the theme that that this writer was suggesting was that the very global quality may be uh, shrinking as this localism. I don't know if it's nation state based or city based or uh, region or economic node based, but doesn't require might not require as much global exchange. Can you imagine that?
1: Um, I find it. Can the factories come
0: home from China and be automated right here?
1: Yes, of course they can. But I think they could be anyway and they're not. So then we have to look at why. And that's, I think, what I'm getting at. I think that whether it can happen or not is a function of what kinds of governments people want to have and other kinds of forces. So, for example, one of the things that globalization has done in the world is has it has created an increasingly homogeneous population. Now, that, obviously, there's enormous human diversity, but what I mean by that is if you look at, say, the number of languages that people speak, we mm-hmm. can see the number of languages has contracted a lot. If you look at the way that people dress, mm-hmm. if you went around the world 100 years ago, you would have seen a much greater variety of mm-hmm. dress, particularly mm-hmm. among men, mm-hmm. than you see in the world today. Mm-hmm. We know, of course, about pop culture and so on, mm-hmm. and it's it's global consumption. So, we have a kind of in that sense, convergence of peoples, which could fit very much with what you're saying about this this article, that as it becomes possible for people to produce whatever product at home, yeah, you know, maybe we will become more, uh, as it were, autonomous, but we'll become more autonomous in a way because we all want the same thing, perhaps, that's being produced by that 3D printer. Um, so that I could imagine. I guess I find it, though, on the other hand, hard to dismiss the reality that resources are differentially divided around the world if you simply think about stuff like you know what are the components that go into a cell phone you know obviously they are mined in certain parts of the world congo being one of them and not in others mm. if you look at uh,
0: uh though apple and others talking about trying to get beyond rare earth requirements in their products uh, i don't know the, the whole the whole trade mechanism that's, that that drove so much of the American manufacturing base to Asia, uh, if you can come back with robot factories, do they come home? Does that shut down? I wonder what you think. So, that-
1: yeah, I mean, I think on manufacturing, it, it, it could very well change. Mm-hmm. I think that on uh, commodities, I think in the end, as I say, you know, mm-hmm. the earth is, is a planet. It has things differentially divided in, in different places. Uh, And how those resources are divided up is ultimately the stuff of political economy. Mm. And right now, the people who get to decide how that stuff is divided up are are governments and big corporate entities. And I think that for the kinds of transformations to happen that – the article you read sketched out would require pretty fundamental changes in the way that governments and corporate entities are behaving
0: what are you thinking as you see the trade war talk that's so much in the air right now more than talk at this point maybe we are in the midst of a trade war uh how does that fit with the globalization wave or is it inevitable kind of uh back and forth as that happens
1: so i think that i i don't have a huge insight into trade wars per se but what i would say is that when you have integrated markets you have uh forms of pushback against it which have to do with for example protecting your labor force and Mm -hmm. protecting your Mm -hmm. own manufacturing and protecting your own uh, commodities and that what we see right now in the world is of course a lot of the quote-unquote globalization losers that is the countries. Who are sort of sliding in the face of the rising Donald economies. Trump
0: would say the USA
1: exactly pushing back against this. Now, what I find interesting about it is that, as I'm sure your your listeners will know, there's a there's a kind of left wing version of anti globalization and a right wing version of anti globalization. Okay. Uh, and my guess is that both would favor forms of uh, protection of American workers, for example. Uh, but that what troubles me about the trumpist discourse is that it's the right wing version of uh, anti-globalization which also comes with separating immigrant families at the border uh and i think that in the trumpian worldview these two things are inseparable from each other the trade war goes with a war against immigration and i think in what's the-, the
0: connection there is it because is, is there a race element to trade is that, I mean, you know, you've got people saying now, look, he's just trying to build a wider country here, and he'll take extreme measures to do it, or to rebuild a wider country here.
1: I think it's a political and rhetorical uh, union, which does have racist elements, absolutely. Uh, it's one that's sanctioned by a lot of history. Uh, and I think, again, the left-wing version of it, I mean, the left-wing version of it may also be uh, concerned about unregulated movement of people, but does not... Uh, Openly endorse and adopt the the incredibly racialized and racist language of the the right wing anti globalization movement. But I think that this is also I think that we're in a very difficult moment for uh, political groupings as they are uh, in the U S. and I see it also in Europe, of course, precisely because uh, the issue of trade, for example, is something that cuts across some of the traditional party lines. Can't that. you
0: just see Conrad going to town with the images of children being torn from the arms of their parents and held kind of hostage to an agenda from a distant capital?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's an appalling picture. Now, of course, one could say that Conrad didn't go to town with the equivalents of that in in his era, which involved all kinds of uh, forced labor and so on. Um, but then again, he did somewhat, so I won't I won't sell him short entirely on that. I mean, I think he was well aware. There's actually a very moving story of his. Uh, It's called Amy Foster. Tell us. Uh, And it's a story about um, a guy, a migrant from Central Europe, who finds himself uh, on a ship that is going to take him to the Promised Land, which he believes to be the US. And instead, uh, there's a wreck and he's dumped off uh, along with huge numbers of other migrants mm-hmm. who are all kind of kept in the hold in terrible mm-hmm. conditions.
0: Sounds very familiar these days.
1: Exactly. And he's uh, dumped off on the on the coast of England and he makes his way into England and stumbles over farm gates and fences and mm. through the fields and, and finds himself in a village where uh, he's seen as basically an animal by the people who discover him because he can't speak English. Mm. He's smelly and mm-hmm. hairy after mm-hmm. this voyage and mm-hmm. and ultimately, one English girl in this farming village takes pity on him and is kind to him and they fall in love and they get married and have a baby and uh, he, speaks to his young son in his own native language, which we can conclude to be Polish or something of the sort from Central mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and his wife grow alienated. She doesn't like at him that speaking moment, she in this language. To, mm-hmm. Yes. And then uh there's a kind of rupture and he ends up dying in this village of a broken heart. Uh,
0: how does how does your own family background inform your work as a historian looking at the work of conrad you've got what is sort of an asian uh, taproot you've got a jewish taproot out, out of europe does it come into the way you see the world the way you approach history
1: it does i mean i i grew up in a Bicultural household. Uh, I grew up in one at a time when I don't think we were talking about that very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly grew up at a time when my mother who's from India was uh, I mean, she had emigrated to the country at a time when Indians were not allowed to immigrate to the country because of uh, immigration restrictions. Mm-hmm. And she came in because her father worked in the UN and, mm-hmm. Uh, it was a particular type of dispensation in any event uh, I grew up in a time when there were the the presence of South Asians, for example, in the United States was much lower uh and so I think that the the maybe two things that I took away from my own childhood that have inflected my outlook on things are uh for better and worse, I certainly think there's some worse to it um I tend to be drawn to figures of outsiders in various ways Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in, in what I do, uh, in a way that of course I think Conrad was as well and Conrad was himself an outsider. Um, and the flip side of that maybe the second thing is that I tend to Be extremely resistant to seeing things in terms of black and white, Mm -hmm. uh, either or. I think they're usually both and or more complicated or shades of gray. I think it's one reason I'm a historian as opposed to various other forms of social science. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's why I'm drawn to, say, literature as opposed to a. certain form of philosophy, say, I'm drawn to these kind of complex narratives in which it's hard to know what the right way forward is. And I say for better and worse, because I'm very well aware that there are, um, particularly in this moment, strong forces that that would encourage us to be very, um, very clear-cut and very forceful about our positions on certain issues. You know, empire was bad, for example, is one that that I hear a lot. And I find myself politically in sympathy with Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. kind of position and yet uh in my actual work uh i find it hard to i find it hard to imagine that my job or my goal is to pass judgment so much as that my job or my goal is to explain and understand because i think in the end it's Comes back in a sense to what you asked about. Well, why should free trade and anti-immigration go together? Well, mm-hmm. why should they? That's a really good question, and the answer to that is going to be found, I think, in history and complexity and rhetoric and uh, sentiment and racial identity. <laughs> yeah, all of these things that that are that are require us to be, you know, at once kind of very open-minded to things that we might dislike, and then on the other hand, very um, uh you know very very sort of clear about the possible uh, implications of some of the things that we see
0: the american story right now in terms of empire in terms of the populist uh, movement that we see so strong in this country certainly in the leadership of this country right now where do you see those pushing oh historian your your playground is the past but we all of course as human beings we look with eyes wide open and lately uh, sort of terrified sometimes at the future where do you see the American currents pushing
1: well I think as we've seen very clearly um, in recent years the the existing political parties are not accurately capturing or adequately capturing or you know uniformly capturing uh, the range of political sentiments in the country um we I mentioned earlier that I think that you know the the, the there's a there's a right-wing version of populism and a left-wing version of mm-hmm. populism I think we've seen in effect civil wars in both the the Republican party and the Democratic Democratic Party. The Republican Party Civil War appears to be resolving broadly speaking toward trumpism the democratic a civil lot of people war. are going to swallow
0: hard at that and say oh my god will it not for go sure. back will it not be temporary but maybe well it, it
1: may i don't know and of course with that civil war there will be losers from the civil war so to speak who will then find their way somewhere else mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the democratic civil war as i see it is still ongoing there's the the clinton and the sanders for, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way of putting it and uh and you know one could also say essentially in each party there's a centrist faction and a populist faction or a centrist faction And a further right, further left faction. Um, So, that is still being waged. I personally don't see it getting resolved in time for some of the more uh, democratically optimistic predictions for 2018. Um, I know that what I'd like to see Mm -hmm. is a more responsive political system. I'd like to see a system in which we actually don't have to choose between just the two parties and so on. I think that's unrealistic given the Constitution and the way our political system is uh, worked out. It's not unrealistic in a parliamentary system, as in Europe, where we see these things playing out too, but in slightly different forms.
0: Though even there, it it can take them in many uh, directions, which can be kind of alarming
1: lately. Yeah. I mean, if I had to put a prediction on it, I suppose I'd say that the overriding truth that any American political actor has to face is indeed relative economic decline, and that therefore the possibility that a certain form of economic populism will take hold on both the left and the right is pretty good. Um, But I think that along with that come all of these almost sort of path-dependent associations. So, for example, why should somebody who uh, wants to have protection for their industry also believe that you should be able to carry a gun into a college campus. Why should that person also believe that women shouldn't be able to have an abortion? Mm-hmm. Why should that person also believe that, uh, that, that climate change is, is, is not man-made? Associations I mean, these are, of
0: doctrine, which may not have any natural reason for being.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I feel, I mean, my ideal world would be one in which for America, one in which some of those kinds of associations can be broken down. Uh, and I also think that in the end, I mean, my own sympathies are overwhelmingly with the more humane promise of the United States, and you know, I think, uh, you know, the struggle to find the more perfect union is a very much ongoing struggle. I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that uh, it's a it's a struggle that is. Uh, well, I don't think it's a struggle that's ever going to be resolved, uh, but I'd like to see us be able to stand up for, for example, workers who are having a hard time and, uh, and, and and make sound decisions for our economy, while at the same time continuing to be open to the world in the ways that have very manifestly enriched this country.
0: Somewhere between the heart of darkness and that more perfect union, uh, we stand as, as we speak today. Maya jasnov's book is The Dawn Watch. Uh, we can see Joseph Conrad kind of in the mists out at sea. Imagine him watching all this and sailing through it, uh, going for the nuance of human interaction that plays out even while all these politics play out. Maya Jasna, it's been just great talking with you. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Thank you for the conversation.